I'm going to present everything to you in a, the most well-rounded way that I can to show that food and the people who bring it to you are irrevocably intertwined. And if you're talking about food plus people, then you have to talk about the earth, the environment, sustainability, economics, agriculture, political history, because that's who we are. Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we explore the hidden side of modern work. My name is Martin McGovern, founder and lead coach at Career Therapy, and today I want to welcome longtime friend and food writer Sabrina Medora to the podcast. Sabrina is a national food writer, editor, and founder of Unplated, where she celebrates the little-known stories and unsung heroes of the restaurant industry. In our conversation, we explore how food is inextricably linked to our identities, cultures, and even our mental health especially as we saw the industry change so dramatically throughout the pandemic. Sabrina also shares her experiences shifting her business from a marketing firm to going all in on her writing, where she is now bringing all of these incredible stories to the world. If you like this episode, I hope you'll check out Sabrina's work at Unplated. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening, leave a review, and even share with a friend who might be interested in these conversations. So without further ado... Here's my conversation with Sabrina. So let's let's go back to the beginning. Uh, when you launched Unplated, uh, what was going on during that time in your life? And what was sort of that inspiration to build your own thing? Yeah, so um, I had just quit advertising the year prior and um, actually was very successful with um getting clients of my own in Chicago, where um, I was providing digital marketing services for restaurants. And that gave me the opportunity to kind of see how restaurants operated firsthand from the back end. Um, I spent a lot of time with chefs, with restaurant owners, in kitchens, out of kitchens, at events, and just kind of like used my already there skills to learn more about an industry that I wanted to focus on. And um, at the beginning of 2018, we actually, my husband and I moved over to Washington, DC. It was not a super planned out move. And so um, kind of took me a little bit by surprise and it gave me the opportunity to think to myself, okay, it's been a year since I quit my full-time job. I've had successful freelancing. What, what's next? What else can I do? And I think at that point is where I've really started focusing on, okay, I really want to become a food writer. I now know what goes on in restaurants. What can I do with that? I did not have a lot of experience um, writing for other publications. I had only been published, I think, three or four times prior. And so um, I was noticing that a lot of the stories I wanted to tell weren't exactly what mainstream publications like um, like local places and eater and things like that really wanted to see. It was kind of the era of listicles and that was not really my thing. Um, I wanted to dig into the people behind the restaurant industry and culture behind food. Not to say that that didn't exist. It's just, um, it was hard for me to place those pieces in publications because I didn't have a lot of experience writing those. So I decided, you know what, why do I need to let a bunch of gatekeepers stop me? Let me create my own. <laughs> um, and so I invested in creating a website for myself and I called it Unplated um, just because I kind of wanted to encourage people to think about food beyond what they see on the plate. This was also the time where, you know, 
food porn was really skyrocketing on Instagram and everyone was eating like this. <laughs> and it was just an opportunity for me to um, just nudge people to think about what went into what they were taking pictures of. And so I started reaching out to people in Chicago and Washington, D.C. that I had kind of met and connected with over the past year. And I said, would you be interested in me coming and doing an interview? It wasn't just with chefs. I wanted to talk to the pastry chef, line cooks, servers, managers, restaurateurs. And um, everyone was more than willing to talk. And so I started writing about four pieces a month, like one a week. And it really just started to gain traction quite quickly. So that was nice. So that's kind of how that all started. I love it. And you had so many different ideas that you kind of went through to get to that point, right? Like I even remember doing a, a, a video with you at one point back in the day um, where, <laughs> where you were still exploring that same idea, right? We, uh, it was honey butter fried chicken, I believe. What, <laughs> what was the concept behind that? And how did that sort of play into your journey? The concept behind that was chef at home. Um, and this is really hilarious because there is a large publication that during the pandemic started pretty much the identical thing and it has gone no gangbusters way. on their YouTube channel. And I'm sitting there like, oh, I had this idea three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so it just goes to show if you don't get it in front of the right people, you can really get screwed. Um, but no, the idea was just uh, everyone to spend so much time wondering what chefs are doing, you know, in their restaurants and the glamour behind what's on the kitchen line. Um, and no one really thinks like, well, what do they do in their time off? What do they, what are they interested in? And so we had shot a pilot episode together with uh, chef Christine Chakowsky of Honey Butter Fried Chicken, where she and I made breakfast tacos. And we just talked about, you know, identity through food. And that was such, just such a lovely moment. Um, and so I, I keep trying to bring that vibe into all of my work and I feel like it's certainly evolved because it's now gone from just like what are you eating to like why are you eating this what is the inspiration behind this what does your family your culture your heritage your background your upbringing your interests how does all that come together on the plate um, and sometimes I don't even talk about food anymore which is kind of really awesome I just talk about how the restaurant industry is evolving, um, the steps that restaurant industry needs to take to become a safer place for people to work, a more sustainable place for people to work. I really started exploring a lot of reporting news um, in the industry. And um, so it's kind of great to see how, you know, my initial fascination with food has, has evolved into kind of a many tentacled concept. That's so cool. And how did your identity play into all these ideas? What's been your identity with food and culture growing up and how did that play into your work? That's an excellent question, especially right now, because I'm constantly thinking about it these last few months. Um, growing up, I was uh, bouncing around several places, um, Canada, the United States, India, and um for my formative teenage years, I was actually in New Jersey and I was one of maybe like two Indian kids in the whole neighborhood. <laughs> and um, I sort of learned very quickly to erase my accent, uh, my 
heritage a little bit, my culture, because I wanted to fit in, you know, kids are mean. <laughs> and you want to do what you can to, you know, show them that you know what they're talking about when they're talking about music and movies and burgers and fries and all of that stuff. Like I had never had root beer till I was in the sixth grade, for example. I still wow. hate it. Like <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, my, my childhood sort of taught me like suppress everything from my culture and just push to the front what's popular. And so I watched a lot of TV. And so Mary-Kate and Ashley and Lindsay Lohan and Amanda Bynes, pre all the craziness, <laughs> played a really huge role in how I presented myself to my peers. And um, then when I moved back to, the, back to India for high school, I sort of like clung on to that Americanized version of myself because it made me feel different and a little special. And also it gave me a sense of security because at that point I didn't know how to interact with a lot of the Indian customs. And there was a lot about India that I rejected from a cultural and educational standpoint. And so I sort of hid behind this facade of, well, I grew up in America, so I don't understand what you guys want from me or what you're talking about. But really it was more like, I just didn't know how to relate. And um, then I went back to the United States for college and slipped right back into my, you know, old ways of just fitting right in, sort of chameleoning myself to suit the circumstances. So on one hand, I always thought it was a huge skill of mine that I can walk into pretty much any room in the world and fit in somehow because I'll be able to blend. Um, and then I know the moments where I can stand out safely. <clears throat> but it wasn't until I started writing about food and questioning chefs on their how their culture affects their work that I started thinking about how my culture affects my work. And I realized that I had sort of really rejected so much about where I had come from. And what's funny is because we've moved around so many times, be it like physically or in countries, um, I've never been able to call a place home. There's so many places that can be home for me, but I, I, I find home through food. And so like there's, you know, if I see chicken rice or I smell chicken rice, which is a Hainanese uh, Singaporean dish, that reminds me of like moments with my grandparents growing up in Singapore. And then, you know, tandoori chicken and biryani, if done right, hit the table. And all of a sudden it's like my young childhood and my high school years, you know, everything I loved about India was so much of it was food. Um, and so that's kind of where I found identity a little bit was through food. And then I realized, why am I not talking about the food that strikes me the most? And that's when I started really seeking out Asian chefs and Indian chefs and trying to highlight what they do and also learning the vast nature of, for example, Asian food. Um, and so like <clears throat> started sort of talking about, well, let's not call it Asian food. Let's, there's a million different ways to do it. Let, there's Indian, there's Vietnamese, there's Laotian, there's Filipino. Let's learn about every single one of these. So I'm able to understand the threads that tie us, but also what makes us so distinctive. And I started studying about the diaspora of food and how um, Indian cuisine and African cuisine are so hand in hand with, with some of the food like curry and chana and things like that because of slavery and because of um, the British and colonialization and the trading. And, you know, I started to really appreciate that food is not just 
food. It's economics and agriculture and history and war and, and, and sorrow and pain and all these things. And it's just the most wonderful thing. And there's so much more to learn. And so every day feels like a journey. Um, but my writing has evolved because of that, because now I'm putting that at the focus of what I talk about. Every piece I write is with the intention to get people to understand a little bit more about where, what, where they're eating is really coming from. Um, and I guess that kind of came to a head during the pandemic. Um, I started cooking Indian food and until then I had never done that. <laughs> I'm very good at cooking Italian cuisine. I'm very good at Chinese food, but cooking the food of my people, which is the Parsis Persian community, I had never done it. And then, um, suddenly I was in a lockdown. I couldn't visit my family. My grandfather had sadly passed away and I was just craving home and I didn't have that. So I called my mom and I started jotting down recipes and experimenting in my tiny little kitchen in DC. And all of a sudden it was like all my ancestors were standing right beside me at the stove, like whispering, oh, you got to put a dash more of cumin. You got to put a dash more of lal masala and just like standing there in the dark, like huddled over the stove with like dipping a chip into dal and just like letting it wash over me. It really made me realize just how much, um, for me, family is food and sense of identity is food and how that starts to play with other people. So that was a very roundabout answer to your question. No, I love it. It's, it's such an emotional thing Yeah. <laughs> when you think about identity and food. And so, you know, I purposely seek out um, opportunities to work with chefs and really understand like, what is what's the cultural history behind this dish i like to research the actual history of ingredients now understand how you know the spices were traded and came all the way across to the west and how they were repurposed and re-represented and how slavery plays a huge role in american cuisine today and um i think it's important because if you're going to fawn over something anything. Um, I feel like the right way to do it is to honor where it comes from. And that way you're not erasing generations of hands that brought it to you indirectly. Are there any experiences that you've had in your journeys where you've seen it being erased that stand out to you and which, yeah. you know, maybe brought up that thought? Oh, Barton, every day. <laughs> Um, food media is interesting, you know, um, it irks me sometimes. And I think, I think I'll be honest, when I was first starting off as a food writer, I was so caught up in the glamour of restaurants and the glamour of food TV, like Food Network, Top Chef, things like that, that all I could think about was fine dining, celebrity chefs, what made things special, what made things stand out. And I, in the wee recesses of my head, I probably had those instincts like, huh, that's an interesting way to talk about cumin. <laughs> huh, your stew is actually just curry, 
you could just call it curry, you know, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so I, had, I definitely had those moments, but I never, I was always, I think I was just scared of questioning because then I'd look like the troublemaker, like, why are you questioning this? This is like, stay away, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it wasn't until so many things happened, I think I needed to become more comfortable with my own identity, which meant becoming comfortable with the fact that I had erased so much of my identity for so long. Um, you know, the presidential election had a lot to do with it because all of a sudden we were kind of forced to deal with um, a rhetoric in the country that was focused around othering. I, I, won't, I won't go right to hate, but I, I can definitely with great comfort say there was a lot of us versus them on both sides. And, you know, being part of a mixed race family, it kind of like, I felt caught in the middle of that argument personally and professionally, just like, well, where, where do we draw the line? Why are we othering people so much? What is the harm? You know, like all these very difficult questions came to a light and, and all of a sudden you couldn't separate what was on the plate from what was happening in politics, from what was happening in history. And at some point, I think I woke up and realized you're not supposed to. The whole point of food is it's, it came from the earth, but it also came from the hands that planted it there and the bodies that traveled with it. And, you know, there, there is a lot of heavy politics and history to all food in all countries. And why aren't we talking about that? And then I started to see some irksome things in social media and on food media in general, where, you know, there'd be white men and women that would be celebrating for example, like golden milk. I don't know if you were part of the dialogue with the web that What's was on the way. Literally, it's turmeric in milk, which has been an Ayurvedic um, like remedy in India for centuries. And all of a sudden, it's in all of these like food magazines, and it's being called golden milk, and it's being touted by all of these white influencers. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, you mean tur like turmeric milk? <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> this like this is a thing and it's like there were people that would acknowledge like oh this is an ayurvedic thing but like the way they were saying it it was like they discovered ayurveda and i'm like oh that's painful and so every time i would hear that i would just want to like curl up and die and then you know um there was allison roman who is a food writer who um big scandal during the pandemic she uh I think she tried her hand one too many times with sort of presenting her recipes in a way like she had discovered like chickpea curry mm. and she would call it the stew. And just the way, like from the way things were marketed to the way things were presented to how she would like speak on videos. And I hate calling her out by name, but she was like the most popular drama of 2020 in food media but there's so many people that did it and still do it where it's like I'm sorry you did you didn't discover Chinese five spice you are allowed to use it and you are allowed to celebrate it but think about how you speak of someone else's culture or the one that like drives me craziest is there will be um Asian style restaurants all across the United States, whether they're specializing in Chinese, Laotian, Thai, whatever, most of the time when they're run by um, white male or white female chefs, they're just Asian. And then there's a mis mis mishmash and yes, they're taking liberties. And you know what, that's wonderful. And you know what, the food tastes great. But when you misspell 
the traditional name from another oh, wow. culture or you say words like x is all the rage now and i'm like floored over here because hi this this is a thousand plus year old recipe how dare you say it's all the rage like no <laughs> stop co-opting <laughs> and so like um to answer your question it's every day of my life i see i can name like I can go on Instagram and point out like probably 10 posts within one scroll that have some sort of problematic cultural reference. And here's the thing. My perspective is it's not like you're not allowed to do it. Like we are welcoming you to experience what we experienced growing up, but also don't forget, like I am part of the generation of children that used to like be ashamed of what was in the lunchbox. If it was anything from our culture, because people would say, oh my gosh, it smells. Or like right. someone once came up to me and they were like, oh, it's so great your house doesn't stink of curry. And I'm like, what? Like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and so what? And now you people are just like celebrating curry in your homes, but let's just forget the fact that you used to insult it. You know, it's just, you have to be more mindful of how you're talking about another culture's food. And like, even when you're talking about things like barbecue or um, cornbread, collard greens, like, can we stop for a moment and just acknowledge, like, these are African American heritage dishes that were born out of slavery. Let's not, like, let's be careful how we tread here. And I just feel like when you know what the dish is, where it comes from, the hands that brought it here, the, like, the pain and the sorrow and the joy that comes alongside it, you're, it's just such a better experience when you finally dine because you're tasting so much more than just a, an assembly of ingredients prepared together. Yeah. And so. it really, I like that you're bringing up the identity and the psychology of it too, right? Because all the things you're talking about, it's, it's not just this reminds me of home, right? It reminds me of home, but it also reminds me of all the different experiences I've had with that food. And, uh, you know, I think there's been studies done on like your olfactory as like one of the biggest triggers of deep rooted memories, right? And so all of this stuff is so deeply tied to who we are as people. Um, and I'm not sure everyone has all those personal cultural touch points, right? I think, you know, some people just grew up on market day. I'm, I grew up on market day, you know, and like, there's, there's such an interesting um, depth and breadth that like, I, I think it's, it's so cool that you have, you know, the intimate experiences from your culture and your family, but also you understand the marketing psychology behind it all. So you're, you're bringing two different sides to this of like, understanding the cultural side of things and also understanding the marketing and advertising and social media especially side of things and right. you know how much is is golden milk just a social media trend that people are trying to hop on and how much of it is like theft and how much is that overlapped and all these different things you know right. um, because everything is so hype online and every right. and social media can be such a detrimental thing in every aspect, like I'm, I, I just logged on yesterday and I just saw these like TikTokers using mental health issues to sell things like to get your money, basically right. just, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, you've been bullied and you've been this and you've been that. So pay me money. Yeah. It's like this, this craziness that exists online. And I know you have such a, an interesting, you know, 
well of knowledge about that stuff. And I'm curious, you know, as you've been diving into this world, um, how has, you know, social media and just media in general shaped our psychology around, you know, these topics of identity and mental health in your mind? It's such a tricky subject to delve into because let's focus on the benefits, right? In terms of benefits for me personally, as a food writer, as an immigrant, as a woman, as an Indian, Southeast Asian, all of these things are part of my identity that I'm stepping into and growing into. I really appreciate that social media is a place where you can find awareness, where you can engage in conversation with people that you otherwise would um, I appreciate that social media is a tool of discovery. I appreciate that social media is a gauge for what people want to hear about. Um, for me personally, I have gotten a lot of um, writing advice and connections by staying on Twitter. All good things. The cons, for me personally, social media is very, at this point, triggering, and I have to really monitor my use because maybe I'm just following the people that have a lot to say about a lot that's wrong with the world right now, but for me, it can be a very depressing, angsty, anxious place. Um, and so, you know, trying to remind myself to step back, um, trying to remind myself that I don't have to engage with every single thing that's being said that I can relate to because it's not my job to educate someone else. And I've learned over the course of my, you know, years, especially the last three years, um, I can't change people's minds. And I, I finally have found peace with that. Um, because it's no longer my intention to change people's minds. It's my intention to stay in the lanes of what interests me and do those things the right way, the way I think is the right way to approach them. So when I'm writing about food, I'm not just writing about taste. I want to ensure that I'm writing about the history, whether it's political, agricultural, economical, I want to make sure I'm talking about sustainability. So if I'm sharing a recipe, I want to be able to tell home cooks, you know, how can you save a little water on this? How can you maybe eliminate plastic in this? How, uh, how can we store this so there's no food waste? Like, I really want to be thinking about that. Um, I want to be thinking about the joy that the dish brings and that the chef brings. Um, if I'm writing about something that has to do with reporting or a chef profile, you know, I want to focus on the chef's like honest truth of like what the restaurant industry is like at the moment, because it can be a really toxic space. Um, but also how can we make it better? You know, every time I talk with a chef, I say, what do you think your um, leadership could do or other restaurants could do or you could do to make this place safer for people to work from a monetary standpoint, a mental health standpoint, substance abuse standpoint. You know, I like to make people aware and I try really hard to ensure that every piece I write is well-rounded because that's on me. What the audience does with it, my hope is that it inspires a little thought like, huh, I didn't think about it, but when I wash my grapes, I do waste a lot of water. Let me try immersing them in a bowl and washing them that way instead. If, if you make that one little change, you know, that's awesome. Or if you read about a chef and 
the chef is transsexual. And prior to this, you've never really thought to look up what transsexual means or how it affects people that are transsexual that are coming out and speaking out. But now you're seeing a chef that you've admired for so long and you're like, huh, oh my gosh, this is so interesting. And you know, I would want to have definitions in that article, like, well, what is transsexuality? How can we learn more about transsexuality? What are some resources? Perhaps people will go look at these resources. And then the next time a conversation about transsexuality comes up, you have a little more empathy or perhaps have a little more to contribute to the conversation or perhaps know enough to not contribute to the conversation and allow others to share. So, you know, it's, it's really not my intention anymore to use social media or my writing or my work at all as a tool to be like, you're wrong for saying that curry is awesome and you should change your mind and blah, blah, like that's just not me. Um, perhaps it was me at one point when I was, you know, first starting out. Um, but now it's just kind of like, well, I'm going to present everything to you in a, the most well-rounded way that I can to show that food and the people who bring it to you are irrevocably intertwined. And if you're talking about food plus people, then you have to talk about the earth, the environment, sustainability, economics, agriculture, political history, because that's who we are. If you're talking about humans, that's what you talk about, because that's what brought us here today. So that, and then, you know, it's up to them. If, if they read the piece and they're like, ugh, why can't you just stick to talking about food? My answer is I am because that is food. And if you're looking for someone where you only want to hear about how something tastes, then I'm not the right writer for you to read, but there's plenty more out there. So do it, do with that what you will, but I'm trying <laughs> yeah. hard to like not engage, but perhaps just, I feel like inspire is a really lofty word, but perhaps encourage people to think differently and to associate their actions with food, with empathy. Yeah, and at the very least expose people, right? Because I think so yeah. much of, you know, our world is glossed over or, you know, homogenated, right? Like every town is just turning into the same. I, I tried to get lunch today and I was like, what can I eat? And I'm wandering around. And I'm like, unless I'm going to sit down and have an hour and a half meal, it's, it's all the same food, right? It's yeah. Chipotle, it's Subway, it's whatever the five places are that are yeah. just copy and pasted everywhere. And I remember even in college, I would go on road trips and you'd get to certain towns and you'd be like, well, this town has some pretty unique little mom and pop places. And uh, I haven't, you know, this is just long lamented, right? But that's all been going away. Um, and especially with the pandemic, right? The pandemic put such a burden and such pressure on these smaller places. And I, I walk around, you know, uh, the area of Chicago and I'm in, and it's just so sad to just see all these little shops that, oh, we really wanted to try that, you know, Mexican restaurant or that, uh, you know, chicken place or whatever it was, and they're gone and they, they just couldn't hang on. And I'm curious, you know, as you have been writing about this stuff throughout, um, throughout the pandemic, how have you seen it affect these, this industry and affect the people within it? It's devastated the industry, absolutely. Um, when it comes to mom and pops, I mean, 
again, here's the benefits of social media. Some mom and pop uh, shops were able to turn to social media and galvanize their following and, you know, really like raise this like fervor around their one little spot where they've been getting, you know, dedicated support and Kickstarter fundraisers and this and that. And to them, I say, congratulations, because that's really hard and I'm really happy for you. But there's so many that haven't had the resources to do that. And one thing I want to point out, you know, in speaking with empathy, um, Chinatown was the first to be devastated across the country in every city that a Chinatown was in because of the narrative that it was the China virus. And to that, I say, yes, the virus originated in China. We are aware of that. But you cannot turn to the Chinese American community or people that look Chinese American in your eyes, but could very well be Korean, Filipino, whoever, um, and say to them, it's your fault. And, you know, as a result, just completely devastate their business because of it. Um, we also know that there have been tons of, and I will say tons because I see it almost every day. And if I'm seeing it every day, it has to be happening other places as well. But, you know, Chinese American or Asian American um, restaurants, vandalism, theft, um, you know, breaking, breaking property. I mean, it's, it's horrible. So I wanted to mention that first because it's devastating. And most of those aren't you know, it's not like it's all P.F. Chang. There's <laughs> most of them are mom and pop owned. You know, the, the owners live upstairs and that's all they've ever known. I mean, they're feeding us. Like, how, I don't, I, I struggle a lot with that. Um, but in general, you know, there's places that don't have budgets for PR and marketing. They're doing it all themselves. And let me tell you, when you are trying to raise a family, uh, run a restaurant, do the ordering, manage a staff, worry about the livelihood of everyone that depends on you and yourself and your business and your lease and your money and blah, blah, blah. And then to <laughs> turn out good food on demand with delivery apps um, taking enormously ridiculous cuts of all profits to the point where you are not even sure it's worth it. But if you don't be on the delivery platform, then you have no business. And then to try and be like, well, social media, let's try something here. I mean, right. they can't. so there's so many that just, you know, um, did it on an hour to hour basis. And I mean, I talked to over a hundred chefs in 2020. And I think like, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, there was never a phone call that I got off of where I wasn't crying because it was just devastating because you have to remember, this isn't just a business. This is a person's livelihood. Um, and so many around them. Um, so there were places that thrived, you know, the ones that had celebrity status and PR and all of that. And, and when I say thrived, even they struggled. I mean, they had to slash their staff. Um, the stress was overwhelming. You know, I won't say that any restaurant had it easy, but the ones that are the small mom and pop, small business, local, they struggled a lot and they still are. Um, this has changed the restaurant industry as we know it. I will say all that devastation said, the one really good thing about the pandemic, which is so weird to say it like that, but it has finally exposed the incredible vulnerability of the industry because this is no shock and it's nothing that hasn't been happening for years. Rampant sexual harassment, 
ridiculously high um, rates of uh, substance abuse, huge mental health issues, um, unsafe working environments, um, ridiculous pay. I mean, don't get me started on the pay. Um, and people don't really know, like, you know, the value of a $15 sandwich. Everyone's like, oh, $15, I can't afford that. I get it. However, to sustainably, you know, responsibly raise meat and um, bake bread and manage farms and then to pay workers a fair working wage to where, you know, they're not living, forget paycheck, paycheck to paycheck. Like sometimes they're just living meal to meal and thank God they can eat at the restaurant, but they're not eating your food. They're not eating all the fancy stuff. They're eating leftovers from family meal, you know, like, so, um, what I'm trying to say is there's so much that's always been wrong with the restaurant industry. And that's really what I've focused a lot of my career on is identifying it for the general public because so many have no idea. Um, but now the whole world has come to realize like this just won't do. And there's this huge staffing shortage in the restaurant industry right now. No one wants to go back. And I hear so many people rolling their eyes saying, oh, well, they're all just taking advantage of the pandemic unemployment payment. And I go, I go, think about what that must feel like, that you are making more on unemployment than you are at a job where you break your bones, waiting hand and foot on other human beings, sacrificing your mental health, your stability, your holidays to serve others but you don't, you get, you get paid less there than you do when you're not doing anything. Something's wrong there. Yeah. And it's about time that people stop saying like, oh, the workers don't want to come back and start saying, hmm, why don't the workers want to come back? How can we make this a safer place? This is something that we just, we have to come to terms with. And it really is impactful, right? Like it, it goes through the whole country. And, and I'm curious, you know, as you've been writing throughout the pandemic and, and talking to people and seeing all these things, how has it changed your perspective on what you're putting out there? It, has it evolved the way you're approaching your business and the way that you're approaching the things that you're trying to talk about? Well, I mean, my business changed incredibly over the pandemic because, as I mentioned earlier, I um, was offering freelance uh, digital marketing services to restaurants. And the minute the pandemic hit, I lost all my clients, which meant I lost every last dollar of my income. And so I had about a month's worth of, you know, cushion and I was able to pay my contractors. And then that was it. I was free falling. Um but it also gave me the moment to step back and think to myself, you know, marketing, I, I hate it. <laughs> Just because you're good at something doesn't mean you love it, <laughs> is what I learned. I felt like I had to love it because I was so good at it that I was like, yeah, but I'm miserable. <laughs> and so, um, you know, now uh, I've sort of completely reshifted my business model to where it's just me and I'm focusing entirely on food writing, um, both corporate and public, you know, national magazines and things like that, local places. Um, but it has given me the opportunity to go to my editors and start talking about what I always thought only I could ever talk about on, on plated. Um, that was 
grammatically incorrect, but you get my drift. I think we got it. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I just, you know, now I'm able to talk about labor because people care more. People are more willing to stop having to hear about just what everything tastes like. Cause you know, reviews stopped entirely over the pandemic. Nobody wanted to review chef. I mean, ridiculous notion to review a chef in the middle of a pandemic, Yeah, but um, it created space to talk about everything that needs to be talked about. So the fact that I now have the luxury of talking about culture, employment, um, work issues, um, harassment, sexuality, all within the space of food writing. I mean, it's revolutionary. And there have been so many writers that have been doing the work like that for years. Um, the recognition has been minimal unless you're in the industry, right? Like industry devotees will know their names and think, yeah, they've been doing it for generations. But if you're an outsider, all you're seeing really is, you know, like you said, Subway, Chipotle, et cetera, or Bobby Flay Food Network, or, you know, I mean, you're not thinking about what's going on, what's really happening in the kitchen. So um, yeah, Bobby plays at home ranch recipes or whatever he's coming out with. Now. I, 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 I haven't followed in a while, so I'm not too familiar with what's going on there. Just seeing but YouTube I'm ads. I'm just seeing YouTube ads. <laughs> um, I'm sure he's doing great and kudos sure. to him. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so as you're continuing down this path, what, what are some of the things you're most looking forward to as maybe we come out, hopefully soon come out of the pandemic and people start getting back out into the world? This is the wrong question to ask me. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm one of those people that um, tends to lean on the notion of anxiety a lot. So after, you know, being in my little cocoon for a year and a half now, I'm I'm dealing, I'm grappling with nervousness of, you know, being reintroduced into society and like, uh, you know, having to deal with the realities of other human beings, you know, and especially with, I mean, the year that we just had, pandemic, racial movements, um, environmental horrors. I mean, it's enough to make you want to, you know, <laughs> curl up in bed and just like put, pull the comfort over your head and pretend it doesn't exist. But now we're all going to be re-entering society and having to face these things. And I guess, you know, what I'm looking forward to is um, a space that is more conducive to having these conversations. It makes me really nervous because, you know, I've seen firsthand that conversations about um, race and politics and sexuality are so problematic and uh, stressful and terrifying and, you know, can get really bad and dangerous for the person trying to have these conversations. But at the same time, if, if we don't move forward trying to address all of the elephants in the room, you know, we're just in for another horrific few years. So, um, God, that sounds really negative. What I'm trying to say is like, hopefully people are going to become a little more accustomed to realizing that um, there are appropriate ways to talk about all of these things, that all of these aspects are actually 
unable to be separated from our capitalistic society, any industry we work in has to start thinking about sustainability, um, fair working wages, safety of employees, mental health, like all of these things do need to be talked about. And my hope is that we can approach these in a safe, empathetic, understanding manner. Um, it's going to take a while to get there. But um, I mean, just looking at how food media is trying to evolve. There's a lot that's still very wrong with food media, but you know, I've also been recently reading a lot where I'm like, wow, three years ago, we would not have read this article. And that's pretty cool. So I guess that's just my hope is that we're all able to emerge from this as safely and as unscathed as possible and uh, rethink how we approach everything moving forward. <laughs> Yeah, and hopefully, you know, this has opened up maybe some new ideas and new flexibility for folks in, in different industries. I think the restaurant industry is one of the toughest because you kind of need to be there, right? Like there's, you can't, you can't work it remote. So there's, there's a whole world of things to be discussed there. And it's cool that you're out there writing about it and letting people know what's going on. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. And, you know, just uh, a note to everyone that like, it's okay to prioritize your safety and your mental health and rest. And, you know, the pandemic taught us so much about how we really need to slow down. And then I feel like this latter half few months, everyone has just sped right back up now that we're all like used to being on virtual, we're like back at it and working harder than ever, because now there is no separation between home life and work life for anybody. And, um, you know, that's one thing that I really found to be a positive was the pandemic really taught me like, whew, if you're not taking care of yourself, <laughs> you're not going to be a happy person. So sure. take those breaks. Yeah, absolutely. And if folks want to learn more about what you're doing, where can they find you? Um, they can find me on Instagram at Sabrina Medora. You can also find me on Twitter, C0Sabrina, which is a haha funny play on care of Sabrina, the writer in me. Um, and then you can also find me at sabrinamedora.com. Wonderful. Well, Sabrina, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode today. I really appreciate your support of what we're building here at Career Therapy as we continue to try and explore the hidden side of modern work and tell some of the stories that maybe don't get enough light shed on them. If you enjoyed what you listened to today, I hope you will leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, subscribe to this wherever you're listening or watching on YouTube, Spotify, etc. And uh, share this with some friends who you know are going through similar experiences and looking to build their career and, and gain some insights along the way. Again, thank you so much for stopping by, and I wish you the best. I'll see you on the next episode.